0: It's bluegrass music, Paul. I'm a little nervous about using it.
1: Well, you're in from the bluegrass state, so well, yeah. As a, as a as the resident hillbilly, I approve. You're giving me
0: license to open with. Uh...
1: Yes, yes. You'll be a you'll be an honorary hillbilly for for the duration of the institute. <laughs> 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 it's thematically
0: Hello and welcome to the second installment of the LSA 2017 Linguistic Institute podcast. My name is Kevin McGowan. My guests today are Nicole Holliday and Paul Reed, who will be co-teaching a course at the 2017 Institute entitled Intonation and Social Identity. I recently made my first trip out to Western Kentucky, no, Eastern Kentucky, out to the the mountains since since moving here, and it was gorgeous. Yes. I just I was it was stunning.
1: I I am totally biased, and I make no apologies for that. But Appalachia is one of the most beautiful places that I've ever seen, and I've been to four continents now. So,
2: ooh, fancy. I'm not, sh-
1: I'm not I'm not showing my my bias yet, but it's pretty.
2: I don't think it really holds a candle to Costa Rica, to be honest. <laughs> oh. oh,
1: okay, those are fighting words. But that's Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, I hadn't, I hadn't thought we'd get into ideologies about Kentucky until quite a bit later in in our conversation. <laughs> but um, hello, I, I thought I would start off by asking you guys a little bit about who you are.
2: Go for um, it, okay, yeah, I'll start. Sounds good. Um, so I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, so not so far from Kentucky. Um, I have a bunch of family in Lexington, so that was part of the reason that I was excited that the, the institute was going to be there, um, because I can, when I'm not instituting, I can hang out with my cousins and my uncles and stuff. Um, so I did my, my bachelor's in linguistics and Spanish at Ohio State, um, and then I did my master's and PhD, um, in linguistics at NYU, my dissertation research is about the construction of racial identity through intonational variation. So I studied um, men with one black parent and one white parent and looked at how they vary certain intonational phenomena when they talk to white friends and when they talk to black friends, but also as a function of how they perceive their own racial identity. Um, So I'm really interested in this idea of what um, sort of super segmental features, features that exist um, not at the segmental level of language can do for both identity construction, but also for how people are perceived. Um, so that's basically my, my research plan. The way that I always explain it to, to lay people is that I study what it means to sound black, like what it means socially, but also what it means acoustically. Currently I'm a postdoc in the Department of Linguistics and Cognitive Science at Pomona College in lovely Southern California, just continuing on with the same research that I've been doing for a few years now.
1: Very nice.
0: You sum this up by saying you study what it means to sound black, right? And and this is looking at it through is this oversimplifying? Looking looking at it through people who are sort of necessarily bi-dialectal and uh, how they how they bridge
2: well, to dialectal. Yeah, or? yeah. I mean that was sort of why that was an interesting point of entry for me. And I started with Obama, right? So when I was a mm. first year grad student, I was just obsessed with like listening to every Obama speech ever, because he does a lot of code switching and people have written a lot about this. But The reason that I was interested in people who are, I don't call them biracial because they don't all identify that way, but like there might be, for some individuals, there might be like additional social incentive to be bi-dialectal. And so I thought that they were an interesting population to study for that reason. Obviously, like they're not all bi-dialectal, they don't all experience the same social pressures or feel the same way about their identity, but it's sort of a... An interesting way to go. And, you know, when I started this, I also found out we have so much literature on African-American English. But on, as far as I know, before, you know, the work that I've been doing recently, nobody has looked at people who identify as black and something else in in the linguistic literature. It just like has not been done. Hmm. Um So it's sort of the way the way forward, I think.
0: <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned President Obama. His his intonation strikes me as to my ear. Anyway, it strikes me as very unique, very uniquely uh, Barack Obama. Is that is that true? Is or is is he part is he part of a, a bigger structure that I'm just not familiar with? Yeah, no,
2: with? I think he's he is really distinctive, but I also think I mean it's hard to you couldn't do this experiment because he's so recognizable now. But I think that if you mm. played his voice for, you know, a bunch of Americans who had never heard his voice before, he would be identifiably black. But this is what's interesting about him. He sounds black, but if you read a transcript, you'd have almost no idea because he doesn't do any of the stigmatized, stereotyped, you know, morphosyntactic or phonological things with his voice, but he still sounds distinctively black. So I'm interested in sort of how speakers and listeners are able to participate in, in that system, right, where everyone knows yeah. that this person has a cultural identity, but they're not doing anything that anybody's cognizant of.
0: Yeah, so it's it's sort of like the, the John Baugh research, Yeah, uh, but, but an even lower level, you not even imitating, not even, not even performing the, 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 as you say, the, the phonology or the, or the, the morphology or the syntax, and yet, the social identity comes through. Yeah. And you think that's that's intonational, or are there other? I mean, I think it's intonational,
2: but I also think there's a lot going on with voice quality that we haven't even yeah. really scratched the surface of. So, you know, you mentioned John Ba, the, the paper Prunell and Sardi Ba '99 basically yeah. they looked at intonational they didn't really look at intonation, but they looked at voice quality and found out that they thought that there was something going on with harmonics to noise ratio, but no one has ever been able to figure out exactly what that is. Basically it's that black voices are supposed to be more modal, so less creaky, less breathy, stuff like that. But hmm. I don't know that anybody's really shown like to what extent that, you know, that works. Exactly how modal do you have to be to sound black?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm interested and I'd be interested in how that modal voice interacts with, uh, you know, word final, um, co- stop deletion. Right. Uh, so
2: there's other phonological things that are co-occurring with you know. this that, that might, you know, help listeners pick up on, on the voice.
0: Fascinating. Fantastic. And, uh, all right. Uh, Paul, Paul Reed, so, can you tell us a little bit?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in a small town in, uh, Northeast Tennessee. So, um, Literally, I knew pretty much everyone that I grew up around, so there were about a thousand people. Um, I went to uh, to college at Maryville College. It's a small liberal arts school just outside of uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, and I played basketball there, and uh, along the way, I started taking Spanish and really sort of... I've always been fascinated by language and in, in particular sounds so I was you know the kid that was trying to wire something up to sound as loud as possible or just really always asking you know how can I imitate that or or do that uh, and so when I started taking language courses the more I took the more I liked it the more I liked it the more that I took and so I uh, wanted at that point I wanted to you know to stay on the Spanish track so I, I went to graduate school uh, for my masters at the University of Memphis and there I took my first linguistics course and I use, I kind of refer to that as my compass moment because it was kind of the realization that, whoa, wait a minute, I can do this, study the language part for, you know, for a career. Like I can actually study the language, not the literature, which is great, but like how people sound and why people sound a certain way. And so that was, that sort of set me on, on my path. And so I uh, completed my master's there uh, at Memphis and then I uh uh, taught Spanish in high school for a year, and then I taught Spanish at St. Mary's University in San Antonio for a year, and then I came to uh, to South Carolina uh, for my Ph.D. and um, here I uh, I met Michael Montgomery, who's probably the you know one of the world's experts on Appalachian English, and you know being from Appalachia, that was something that was very um, kind of transformational because uh, through knowing him. meeting him and and we collaborated on some stuff i realized that um, people working on appalachian english well first and foremost is a very small cohort but a lot of the stuff that had been written about appalachian english was written by people that aren't from the region and just growing up there and knowing how important localness is um, i realized that that could be that could be my my contribution so my dissertation work uh centered on what does it mean to sound local uh, from a very small town? So I went back uh, to my hometown and interviewed people that I um, grew up with and people that knew my parents and knew my grandparents and um, really studied exactly how you sound local. Because sounding local means, it really means a lot. And, and it's something that people attune to that it sort of crosses sort of what we would consider traditional sociolinguistic uh, boundaries. So it crosses class, it crosses education, it crosses um gender and it's it's something that people respond to sounding local and so i I tried to figure out um both in vowels so and then also in intonation so with vowels i looked at the monophthongization of the diphthong i and also Hmm. um intonation and so with with intonation nicole and i have uh you know sort of shared a lot of work together and, and had a lot of conversations and we we see a lot of overlap because there are ways to sound, uh, in my case, local, and, and in this case, something, someone's um, Appalachian identity, what I call their rootedness, impacts both their monophthongization of eye and their intonational contours. The, with respect to uh, monophthongization, someone that's, that has a very strong local identity, that's very rooted, they have um, shorter Euclidean distances, so they're very monophthongal, and e- even though these people would all sound Monophthongal to someone not from not from the area, those people that have the stronger rootedness have shorter Euclidean distances, so they're even more monophthongal. So it's not just you know is it a binary monophthong or diphthong, but it's how that monophthong is realized can signal localness. And then with so respect it's, it's to, great,
0: it's this gradient realization of monophthongization. Yeah,
1: exactly. So that so you know very yeah. short. Almost completely monophthong, like you know, some something that would be considered a monophthong. But even within that, th- there's shorter Euclidean distances for the more rooted people.
0: When you say Euclidean distances, do you mean between the first and second targets of the diphthong, or yeah? Uh, so what? From, what? Yeah, oh, okay.
1: 20 percent of the of the vowels duration and eighty percent. So what we would, you know, what we might call the the, the um onset and the glide. Um, so yeah. the shorter Euclidean distance means that it's more monophthongal. So the, that the vowel quality stays the same throughout the, the articulation. Um, and a diphthong yeah. would have a greater Euclidean distance because it would be, uh, there be, those vowel qualities would change throughout. Yeah. And then, um, with respect to, uh, intonation, people with a stronger rootedness had, uh, more frequent rising pitches. Um, and so for the, the the Toby people out there, this is, you know, the uh, L plus H star. Um, so they just have mm-hmm. a lot of rising pitches throughout. And a lot of times rising pitches are associated with some type of emphasis or focus or, or something like that. And I really didn't find that in, in my data. It was really something more along the lines of they just had more of them without being emphatic. Uh, and then also, within those rising pitches, the people with uh, stronger rootedness um, aligned their the, the highest point of the pitch earlier in the syllable. so it was something that they uh, not only did they have more of them, but they actually realized them in a different way. And of course, this is something that is very hard to perceive. so this is again just showing that th- this impact of localness happens even at a um, you know at a super segmental level but it's something that's very below the level of what we consider conscious awareness. It's something that people have internalized and they want to sound local, so they use these features in their speech.
2: It's really interesting too, because like, you know, Paul and I basically like when we met, I was like, what do you do? And he was like, intonation and Appalachian identity. I'm like, I do intonation and racial identity. We're doing the same <laughs> things. And in fact, like we, in our, in our respective dissertations, we ended up with some of the same variables. So what he's talking about um, with the rising pitches, the L plus H star, if you know Toby, I also found, so the the more Black-identified participants in my study were, the more that they used this same L plus H star contour that Paul observed with his white Appalachian speakers. And so it has a very different um, function in in terms of the type of identity that it's conveying. But in both cases, it's a um, similar linguistic strategy that sort of plays out differently to do this identity work.
0: Yep. So are these are acoustically similar? They're, I mean, they're similar say pitch contours?
2: Yeah, they're the same it's actually the same pitch contour.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's the same and, pitch contour. Yeah. yeah, and the and the frequency. So it, it, it's and of course, you know, we had several conversations what could unite these two groups that are well, not even remotely the same, you know, have the this this urban group with uh that have, you know one white, one black parent and then this very, you know, very rural um very um, isolate, relatively isolated community uh, of older and middle-aged and younger white speakers. It's sort of, ha- but they're using the same, the same linguistic phenomena to, to do similar work. It, it, and so that's, that was something that we uh, had a lot of conversations about, just how interesting it was that these two groups, as disparate as they would seem, uh, utilize the same sort of linguistic uh, um, phenomena to, to do the identity work.
0: Yeah, this is fantastic. I have a, I have a pile of questions, most of which I will not. I will I will chase you guys down in some later <laughs> time and ask you about, possibly over a brewed beverage of some sort. Uh, so my first question is: How similar is is this pitch contour we're talking about to sort of the HRT the up uh, talk? I don't, I don't want to throw out the idea. Yeah, yeah, let's say up talk. <laughs>
1: um, this is really, this is really different. Um, this this isn't at the end of a sentence. Uh, it's or, or end of a clause, it's really, so every, or for some speakers, it's almost every stressed syllable will have this rising pitch. And so wow. it's going to sound a little something along the lines like, we went to the store yesterday. And so all of those... St- those stressed syllables have a rising pitch coming fr- from a, like a low point to a high higher target, and it sounds. And people say something along the lines of it sounds sing-songy or store. For, for a lot of my speakers said something along the lines of th- there's just there's a certain way we sound, and they'll say. From storytelling, or it's some holdover from uh, you know Scotch uh, the Scotch yeah. Irish, or th- yeah. there's, there's all sorts of folk ideas. But it is this sort of uh, frequent rising pitch on a lot of the stress syllables.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of uh, musical is the is the term people use,
1: right? Yes, yeah. There's uh, there, there's some they said that there's some melody that we have. Uh, that's, what, that's what several speakers said.
2: There's like a lot of up and down, right? So people get yeah. the feeling yes. that it's roller rollercoastery. Like, that's what it sounds like perceptually. And one of the things that I found out, this is sort of the natural extension of what I looked at. I think that people perceive it as especially emphatic, kind of Mm -hmm. what Paul was getting at. And so um, this is, for black speakers, this is important, right? If you sound especially emphatic and there's other negative social stigma attached to your group, that thing that goes from sounding emphatic to sounding aggressive or Or hostile or just extra loud, right? So there's this stereotype that black people are extra loud. And I think that there's something about this this up and down pitch is what leads to people having that stereotype. So it's interesting because it gets this, you know, sing-songy, blah, 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 but also like what the social effect of that is, depending on the rest of your positionality is, you know, variable.
0: And so you get this kind of perception of, of aggressiveness Outside the social group where this where this intonation pattern is community building say yeah this it comes it comes as it comes out as aggressive or loud or hmm oh but, uh, Paul, going back to something Nicole said earlier, do you think uh in the absence of uh in the absence you know before both voiced and voiceless codas, in the absence of other uh lexical and uh, phonological features and syntactic features do you do you think people get a, a percept Uh, Of Appalachian,
1: yeah, and this. this, So I have a personal story about that. So I was here on campus at USC in Columbia. Uh, Columbia is about 200 miles from uh, from Appalachia, and uh, I was walking past an orientation group, and uh, they were sort of all gathered right around the building that uh, where my office is. So I was walking sort of through the group as I was going into the into the building, and I walked past this. this, this lady talking. And I just knew that she was from East Tennessee. And I totally kind of freaked her out. Cause you know, this big six, eight guy just sort of walked up on her. And I, I assume it was her mother <laughs> talking. And I said, you guys must be from East Tennessee. And of course I got this look of, you know, horror. Like what is, how, how did this strange man figure this out? And so I said, Oh, well, I, uh, I, well, I'm a linguist. I study sounds. And I said, I-, I noticed the way that you talk. And the the daughter looked a little.
0: People love that, Paul.
1: Yeah. They looked at me and the daughter was almost like a little offended because she said, but I try to not sound like that. And I said, no, you, you don't understand. You sounded like home. And that, of course, <laughs> broke down a lot of barriers. And it turns out they were actually from not too terribly far from where I grew up. They were from about 50 miles away, but it was, uh, and and of course, judging by what the daughter said, you know, she had tried to change, you know, the stereotypical things like her monophthongization and you know the um, raised uh, schwa and and you know fronting of the back vowels and, and and other things like that. But she still had the intonation, and that's sort of why I I sort of got you know, keyed on that was, what was it about her speech that I was convinced, like I knew for a fact that she was from East Tennessee and was, you know, reasonably close. I mean, you know, it was about 50, 60 miles away. Um, and so I figured, oh, there's got to be something written. And kind of like Nicole was talking about earlier with her research, there's been a lot of stuff written about Appalachian English as far as lexicon or, you know, a prefixing or, you know, certain mm-hmm. things. But really, as far as anything super segmental, it had only been anecdotal information and, and, you know, sort of passing references that you, you know, in the in the source material and you sort of look at it and think, I'm not sure that this is talking about intonation or it's some type of prosodic process. But there's obviously something there because it was mentioned in several places anecdotally uh, and, and in sort of these yeah. lay descriptions of, of, you know, quote unquote, mountain talk.
2: This is so, something so interesting about intonation, which is that like prior to right now, (laughs) you know, this, this technological moment, it was hard to study intonation in a systematic way. I mean, it was just difficult before everyone had prot and stuff like that, more, more challenging. And so you read a lot of papers, even from the seventies and eighties that are like, yeah, African-American English has a a characteristic intonation. And you're like, great. Could you tell me more? (laughs) But (laughs) they couldn't, you know? Um, And so it's very, one of the reasons that we, you know, we're talking about this course and what we wanted to do and stuff like that was just that it's intonation is so salient for listeners. Like it means a lot for listeners, but it's received comparatively little linguistic study, um, because there's a really high barrier to entry. Like it's, it's difficult, um, to study in a systematic way. I think it's, it's easier now, you know, like with the technology that we have, but still like it's, uh, Kind of, I guess, Paul, you would say a tough road to hoe.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And, And it really is because, you know, with the tools we have now, you can start to address some of these questions. And because, you know, our goal is to describe, you know, a sociolinguist, our goal is to describe that intersection of society and language. And if something that is so salient to listeners, something that's so salient to people, um, we need to understand it, and it, and and it's one of those that now we're to a point where we can start to do that, and it is hard. It, it is definitely a tough road to hoe, um, but it's also something now where we have the capability to start addressing those questions and in, in a systematic way, in a quantitative way, in a principled way that goes beyond just you know African Americans have a distinct intonation or you know Appalachians have a distinctive intonation we can start to talk about yeah. okay it's these contours it's this particular alignment it's the, you know this type of you know you know harmonic activity that signals that and so we can start to approach it and that's really why we wanted to do this course because it's something that everyone can do but a lot of times it's something that they've never thought about exploring, or it just seems it seems really difficult at first, almost impossible until you start to realize that you can break it down, just like we all, you know, had to learn to do when we started started our linguistics training.
0: I'm reminded a bit of Robin Queen's work with Turkish-German bilinguals. Yeah. She, she really yes, is yes. very careful about the intonation, but but here you guys are both dealing with, with dialects of English whose social value is really highest within their own communities, right? I I think that's very exciting. I, I want to push back a little on what you just said about about salience though. I think there might be an interesting intersection here between the fact that intonation and social identity hasn't gotten a lot of uh, attention, uh, technical attention from linguists in the past, and the level of awareness that listeners have of intonation patterns. Nicole, you, 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 you touched on this earlier, right? It's not something we can talk about necessarily, the intonation pattern that, that is uniquely part of our community right or that that makes a voice sound like home as you say paul uh incidentally i've had the exact same experience with speakers of of uh michigan english oh, so nice. where i'm far enough away i think this was what what you were talking about in your anecdote paul is i'm far enough away that clearly i can't hear any of the of the f- phonetic detail beyond the sort of the tune right
2: what i'm doing right now is a perception study where i had um participants listen to Samples from the the data that I collected from my dissertation, and they listened to the same clips, low pass filtered and not low pass filtered, um, mm-hmm. and still got this, the sort of impressions of this is a black speaker or this is a white speaker. And when you ask them, they think that they're relying on the same criteria, whether or not they can hear the the phonemes, like whether they have segmental information or not. Yeah, they're picking up on the same sort of thing. So I would say that's sort of evidence for it being, you know, salient for people, even if they can't really explain why.
1: And and I was saying that it was salient because not only is it something that when you talk to speakers that they mentioned that, you know, there's quote unquote the way we talk or we have that particular sound, but also in these lay uh, descriptions because, you know, the Southern speech and Appalachian speech, there's literally thousands of how to speak Southern, how to speak mountain, how, you know, how to bridge mm -hmm. this huge cultural divide. And there's always a description of speech. And in ones going back from, you know, 1922, there's a description of there's a particular mountain sound. And and this is in a, a chapter... Um, Uh, from uh, a guy that was living just outside of the Great Smoky Mountains National or what is now today the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and he mentioned intonation and then later on in other descriptions so throughout you know going back as early as we can there's some reference to this some way they sound beyond just vowels and consonants because people's you know they'll try to make some spelling change for the vowels or the consonants but in these sort of more impressionistic things this is one of the things that jumped out and then also when native speakers, when they talk about this, that's one of the things that they, that everyone mentioned is there's a way that we sound that makes us us, or there's a way we sound that makes someone sound local. So it, they may not have the vocabulary to describe it, to say, oh, it's a rising pitch, or this is, you know, has a low target or a voice quality or even the high rising terminal. But there, there is something along the way that there is a, there's something beyond the, the things they have more familiarity with like vowels.
0: And until recently, as Nicole was saying, uh, we as a field didn't really have good tools for talking exactly. about these things.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So, uh, segueing from there, I think there's a pretty direct segue to your class. So, the class you're intending to teach at the at the institute next summer, uh, that's social. It's intonation and social identity. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and that. So, in that class, is this going to be mostly hands-on, mostly theoretical? How's how? What what should a student expect?
2: Well, so we were really excited because, you know, once you get into intonation, you're like, why isn't everyone doing this? Like, the world needs to know. (laughs) Um, Or at least that's how I felt. I won't speak for Paul. Um, But uh, a lot of programs, you know, a lot, because like many people that attend the Institute are new PhD students or advanced undergraduates, and a lot of places don't have any intonation classes at all. There's just nothing. There's no one who does intonation um, because it's a particular set of skills, right? And so what we thought would be good for this course was we'll get you know, people, we'll train them in the basics of doing intonational analysis. And then maybe in the future, there'll be some more you know, ambitious students who take this back to their home institutions and do their own analysis of you know, things that have not been well documented yet or create sort of more interests, more demands so that more programs will start you know, incorporating intonation into their, you know, their phonology and phonetics um, curriculum in particular, but I'd say, like, what, as far as what a student's gonna get out of this class, like, if you are a person who's, like, I hear that, like, I hear there's variation, but I don't know how to describe it, or, like, I just want to dabble in intonation because it's gonna help me understand something else better, right? Intonation has, there's, It interfaces with pragmatics, with semantics, with segmental phonology, um, in addition to sociolinguistics and and other things in a really interesting way. So I think the idea is that it would provide them a base for how these things, um, how you look at these things, but also what's been done, right? So we have um, different sort of sections that we've designed within the course talking about ethnicity, talking about gender, talking about local identity. So you're going to get like what we know sociolinguistically about how intonational variation works, but we want to give them um, additionally the tools to do to sort of answer their own questions.
0: So learning Toby, learning to use Prot, yes. these sorts of things. Yes.
2: yes. As much as you can, Absolutely. as much as you can do in, you know, four weeks. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. So, so that brings up a good question. What should I know as a student? What should I know before I come to your class to get, to get, the most out of it, or yeah, let's start with the most out of it. If I, if you really, who's your dream student?
1: Dream student would be somebody who is interested in phonetics, interested in intonation, and that they just they want to learn. Uh, you know, some familiarity with you know sort of basic phonetic concepts would be would be great. Um, you know, f- familiarity with some type of acoustic measurement would be great. But we're going to cover a lot of that. Um, if you, you know, if someone comes in and says, I, "I'm interested in that, but I, I don't have any background," well, we're going to give you some of the tools. But obviously, you know, in a perfect world, if everybody came in with, you know, some knowledge of um, phonetics, maybe a little knowledge of some type of acoustic measurement, then we can, you know, that th- th- we can really build upon that. But that's not necessarily something you you have to have. And of course, both of us being sociolinguists, you know, we're we're sort of the social aspect is something where we're going to try to. You know spend some time to give people a background so they're not going to leave being you know Wolfram or above but they'll they'll leave with an understanding of language varies in all of these ways that we know and intonation does in that. And here are some tools to, you know, to go forth and prosper, to go forth and start answering the questions that you have. So maybe you want to look at a community that you're interested in or just do a, a study replicating one of these with, you know, the communities that that you're around. And then that, that way we're just building, you know, sort of the same way that when you looked at uh, like the Northern City Shift, you know, it started in one area and then more and more studies they are finding, you know, impact of it. All over, you know, all over the the northern cities, and starting to even go further west. And so that's that's one of our ideas is to you know give a, a crop of students tools necessary that they can go and start finding what other types of intonational variation there are. You know, here's what's been done, here's what we know, but here's some tools that you can go and and answer your own questions. Nicole, do you have anything to add to
0: that or? There is so
2: you know, there were so many papers that I wished existed when I was writing my dissertation about <laughs> intonation. Yeah, so <laughs> yes. I was laughing because this is like true. I as I was writing, I was like, you know what? I can't believe someone hasn't done a study on this and that and this and that. And then it gave me a thousand ideas, but I just need someone to do the work. Like there are <laughs> very you know, African American English there are thousands of papers about everything in African American English. There's probably, there's hundreds about the copula alone. Right. Um, yeah. but when you go and you look at the in intonational literature, it's like in the whole history of time, there's been like 12 papers. <laughs> and wow. so I just had a lot of questions that, you know, came up that I wasn't able to answer. Um, so I hope that students, you know, what they get out of this class is they go and recognize the, the lacuna, sort of in the literature. Um, and, that's
1: a good uh, abstract word right there.
2: Yeah, right? I, just, I learned that word like a couple weeks ago, so I've been using it all the time now. Um, lacuna <laughs> L- 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 is motivated. the word I use in intro league. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lacuna. I, I,
0: I use it as an example of a word people can tell as an English word, but don't know what it means. Oh. Uh, uh, but that's a digression. Sorry, you were yeah, saying there's a lacuna yeah, in the so, literature.
2: Um, that they can incorporate this, or at least... Sort of be thoughtful about it, right? So, like, if you yes. are, yeah. you know, writing a socio phonetics dissertation that's totally, you know, it's about coronal stop deletion or something, it's nothing to do with intonation on the surface, knowing how intonational phenomena work makes you a better phonologist, better phonetician. Um, hmm. And I would argue, you know, a better semanticist too. So, um, yeah. I, as far as like our ideal students, you know, it'd be great if you have a little background in phonetics, a little background in sociolinguistics, but I want people. This is what I think the institute is supposed to be for: to take things that are not necessarily in your wheelhouse, because it's an opportunity to just do whatever you want, right? Like learn more about whatever linguistics you're interested in um, that's supplementary to whatever you're getting out of you know your home institution. Um, When I was a student, I I attended the institute as a student um, in 2013, and. That was sort of my one regret is I took a bunch of sociolinguistic classes, which were amazing, but I should have been a little bit more willing to like branch out and dabble in in some other stuff. I think that that would have been, you know, exciting way to do it. So I would encourage students that are not necessarily, you know, already sociolinguists, for example, to to sign (laughs) up and take our course too.
0: There's some presupposition there that they will be sociolinguists after you're done with them. Is that that the...
2: (laughs) I mean... I don't want to say we're trying to convert everyone into sociolinguists, but... No, of course not. It wouldn't be the worst world. (laughs) (laughs) Actually...
0: What you say is is uh, is one of the things we've tried to bake into the into the course offerings at the at this institute, right? So, for example, if you're interested in intonation, you can take intonation and computation with Julia Hirschberg, or you can take prosody and syntax with Norvin Richards. And so you could, I mean, you could presumably leave this institute steeped in lots of different and interesting takes on the same phenomenon, right? So human speech, has these pitch patterns how do we compute with them what do they mean syntactically and semantically what do they mean socially and how do we measure them so i i i'm really excited about about intonation at this institute
2: yeah it's, it's having a moment
0: <laughs> oh yeah it's it's reaching a high pitch
2: well i feel like you know three intonation, <laughs> yeah, <that's dumb. laughs> three intonation courses or courses that you know interface with intonation is pretty awesome and you know i am julia hirschberg's class like i'm hoping that i can sit in on that too because i think it'll be really beneficial um, to, you know, consider it from a different side than I'm used to as well.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yep. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm particularly excited about that because I love whenever phonologists, phoneticians, computational linguists uh, talk to each other. Uh, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounded snide. It was not intended to be snide.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I know what you mean.
0: <laughs> okay. Yep. Wh- yep. We'll go back and see what the Toby coding of that <laughs> sentence will be. Okay. Thank you very much, guys. I'm excited about your class. Oh, is there anything else you want to say about your class or about uh, intonation and social identity?
2: I won't I won't speak for Paul, but if you are listening to this podcast and you're like, hmm, not sure, like maybe I would, you can, you can reach out to me and I will try to convince you that uh, you need to know more about intonation and social identity. Yeah. But I don't want people to feel intimidated by it. Exactly. I think that Paul and I, you know, we really, in designing this, we really were like, we know that people might just want to dabble in intonation and we want to, we want to set this up to be something that's like interesting, enriching, but also exciting. Not, this is not going to be torturous. Like it's we're there for, for you to learn and for us to share the stuff that we're really excited about with students. So that's the main point.
1: Exactly, It's going to be something that we hope will be interesting, will be encouraging. And if you are just like, I'll just reiterate what Nicole said, if if you're thinking about this course and you want more information, feel free to contact me. I I will be I, I make no bones about it. I will proselytize you about doing more intonation work, but I also want it to be something that would be fun and interesting and fit in with the questions that you want to answer. Not to you know basically make you a carbon copy of either one of us, but something that you know can give you. Something in your toolkit that can help you answer those questions that drive you, that you know, that tweak uh, and, and and pique your interest. That that's what we want to do. We want it to be something that can you can leave a better linguist than when you came in. Whether or not you're going to use the exact things that we taught you, or just think about questions in a new way. That's what we want to do.
0: All right. So, uh, so Paul, going back to the very first thing we were talking about uh, at the beginning. You're from Tennessee. Yes. Is there any kind of Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky? intra Appalachian rivalry or, or how does that how does that play out?
1: So this is what's funny. So within both Tennessee and Kentucky, there's really strong regional identity within the state. So someone yeah. that is from Eastern Kentucky will say I'm from Eastern Kentucky. Someone from. No, they'll say I'm from
0: Pike County or whatever. Well, that's
1: that's true. It depends on how familiar they are with the geography. Like, you know, if I I, I say I'm from East Tennessee, but if I know that you know where East Tennessee is, I'll say I'm from Hancock County. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so the people from Eastern Kentucky do the same thing. And part of it is because localness matters so much. And there's not really necessarily a rivalry because. I spent a lot of time as, a, as a growing up in Kentucky. So where I grew up is very close to where Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia all come together. So very near Cumberland Gap. And so huh. we would go to Middlesbrough to get groceries. Um, I, w- I spent a lot of time hiking in Cumberland Gap National Park. And the same thing for, I have friends that, that grew up in Kentucky. So there's there's really more of a sense of connection because we are all mountain people. And, and, and sometimes, you know, we, you know, as scholars, we'll talk about this Appalachian identity, but it's really more of people have a connection to the mountains and, and their local community. So it, a lot of times it, that comes to a county level or even within the county, you know, your individual community, but there is this sense of, of connection because we all have faced very similar types of stigma. Within our own states, within our, you know, within the the, the sort of the, the U.S. as a whole, because, you know, the south as a whole gets sort of a bad rap. And then within the south, the mountains are, you know, they get the worst rap. And then typically the really poor counties like where I grew up and those that are that, you know, border Tennessee and eastern Kentucky get the worst rap. And so that's yeah. something that there's this connection that we all have. So it's I mean, there is some, you know good natured that you you guys cheer for that wildcat team that we try to, you know, beat as badly as we can, but there's also a connection that we, that we have go Vols. Oh, wait, I'm still (laughs) in Columbia. I'm in Columbia. I got to be careful about saying that too loud.
2: Part of why I am so excited about Paul's work is like, you wouldn't, it it might seem so the people that uh, are listening to this, that haven't seen me or Paul, I am, um, black and biracial and I'm five, one, Um, and not a very big person. (laughs) Paul is a very tall, uh, white dude from Appalachia (laughs) and we're like ridiculous standing next to each other. We're like the Olympic (laughs) gymnast and the like basketball player. Oh, Um, that's actually, yeah, that's that's really
1: close. Yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah. You would think that like, uh, you know, I study African-American English like over here and he studies like white people in Appalachia over there, but Ultimately, like through talking to each other, what we found is like there are so many similarities in our analysis in the way that identity works, and so like identity is its own thing to study. And I, you know, like my as as different as I ended up being, like my grandparents are from Appalachia, so like I yeah. I feel sort of a connection to that identity too. But also the idea of being a stigmatized people, right? Like African American yep. English yep. is deeply, deeply stigmatized yep. um, in a in a sort of different way than Appalachian speech, but like the effects on speakers and on communities end up being the same. So yeah. we have a sort of really nice overlap in in the things that we study, even though we look really different. And on the surface, they, the things that we study look really different from each other too.
1: Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better.
0: They, they share more than they differ?
2: Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, yeah
1: I, th- I would totally agree with that.
0: Do you think that speaks to sort of a, a grammar of variation, a grammar of, I- of identity? What do you think?
2: Rachel stendel berdeen also does this type of intonation research that Paul and I do, but she works on um, Jewish English and mm-hmm. she's found like actually the same pitch contour that Paul and I were talking about. This L plus H star thing occurs more often in the speech of Jewish women too. So we've got this, you know, she and I have joked about this, that it's like, it's, All this contour does is like we're non-standard right like there because it occurs in so many quote-unquote like non-standard varieties and seems to do you know almost similar functions in terms of identity so i don't know that i'd say it's like necessarily a pan english universal phenomena or something but there is there is something going on because the same types of contours keep popping up everywhere
1: and it almost seems like it's it's having a very similar function because. It's something that people can notice and hear, but there's not necessarily this overt stigma. It's not like if I, you know, if I said, you know, nice white rice, people hear yeah. that and they and they know it. But if I'd put rising pitches on that, they don't. They 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 may may it may read different, but it doesn't read, you know, poor white trash or hillbilly or some of the other, you know terms that people will have for that high, the use of these highly stigmatized features and so i think it's sometimes a way of you know signaling different or signaling local or signa- signaling your your particular identity without tapping into necessarily some of the overt stigma that does exist and i think that that may be sort of why similar things because you know we haven't necessarily done a a cross comparison of exactly you know, the tr- the complete phonetic implementation of these contours are they all the same? But you know in sort of in finding that there's these rising pitches, it, it's probably in once we do that because we've talked about collaborations, it will there will be differences in how these things are phonetically implemented. But it's a way of signaling, hey, I'm you know, I have a particular identity without tapping into something that's going to, you know, have the other societal baggage that certain features do have.
2: It's exactly the same, like with my speakers, right? This is a way to, this intonational phenomena is a way to sound black without sounding quote unquote ghetto or using Ebonics yeah. or, you know, all of that stuff that's like super demonized. Um, it's, it's, you know, speakers think it's good to sound black, but they don't think it's good to sound poor. not educated yeah and so like all of that stigma that comes along with other phonological features and with morphosyntactic features they can leave behind if they just do the intonation but like still get to sound like a member of their community
1: yeah and for some of my speakers they didn't care they they they, you know they had you know they were monopongal and they had the rising pitches so you know they were basically kind of like this is who i am this is my community this is where i want to be this is who i want to be you know Forget everything else, but there are other speakers who don't necessarily look at it that way, and they had fewer monophthongs or, or you know slightly more diphthongal productions of of I, but they also still had the rising pitches. So they're, they're still signaling localness, but not necessarily having to resort to the full-on you know stigmatized variant that is characterized so much even within the South. So uh, that's uh, yeah. that that's that's one of the you know sort of the the things that some of my speakers did. So the
0: the intonational pattern signals membership without without activating some sort of bias, or not. No, I don't mean bias. Uh, negative evaluation within the community is that is that true outside the community, or is it more true outside the community?
2: I haven't like done the done the the perception study on this yet, but I will say like, at least with African American English, what this intonation pattern gets associated with. In the public imagination is black preacher style, so mm-hmm. people think, oh, this is how MLK sounded. So I would say that um, there are ways in which it's positively evaluated outside the community, or can be, not necessarily because, like, it depends on what that triggers for you, right? If you hear and you hear somebody's intonation and you go, that's a black person, well, your underlying biases are always going to color, <laughs> color <laughs> how you see that, um, <laughs> but. Uh, I think that there is there is like some other overt prestige that can be associated with it.
1: And I, I would con- I would concur with that because so Appalachia has competing notions. Um, you know, it's this place that is, as we sort of joked about earlier, it's beautiful. It's got you know this sort of rich cultural cachet that you know with sort of the you know bluegrass music the you know the this the burgeoning uh you know moonshine industry that we have and all sorts of other things that you know that are culturally positive and it's seen as this traditional place that upholds certain values but at the exact same time it's this very you know impoverished area that's backwards that you know needs to modernize and 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 there's i mean there's there are articles that come out every week about how how, you know, coal is dying. The people need to leave or, or, you know, the timber industry's dead. They need to leave, or all these poor people need to, you know, need to just, you know, smarten up and go move to some city somewhere. And so it has these competing notions and it's Mm -hmm. almost that to an individual, what is your perception of Appalachia? If it's obviously home and this, you know, this area that has tradition and, and, and cultural value, you're going to want to sound like that. But if it has that other notion of, you know, Poverty and lack of education, lack of progress—you may avoid it, and and so that's that's the uh, that's the, the you know the paper that I want to do next is, you know, people outside of the region. What do they hear? Is it is it something that they have a positive spin on? Because it can, because a lot of times when people hear this, they they automatically think of storytellers or or something positive. Exactly. But th- we also have the H word where, you know, your deliverance and the hillbillies and, you know, and so you're thinking, oh, gosh, this is going to be some type of deviant. And so there's those two competing notions that, that you know, that the region as a whole has. And then also those varieties that, you know, index Appalachia have.
0: Is there a burgeoning moonshine industry? Not to, not to pick on the least interesting thing you've said, oh, but yeah, is it burgeoning? Um, Yes, Franklin well, well, Roosevelt enjoyed enjoyed moonshine, as I understand it. But
1: see, it. N- now it's. Uh now it's legal, so there are uh, moonshine distilleries uh. popping up everywhere. So all of the places that were famous for their illegal moonshine are now producing legal moonshine, and it is going gangbusters. I know of let's see, three distilleries here in South Carolina that are starting up. That there, you know, there are about a dozen or more that have that have been going in East Tennessee, in, in um, Northeast Georgia, um, Western uh, North Carolina. There, it's it's going all over, and so it's this because it has some type of new cultural cachet i guess because you can yeah. drink from it's like a like craft jar. beer for grain alcohol yeah. exactly 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 just just like that just like that well
0: that's fantastic i will uh what i will do is i will look for some moonshine places in lexington to recommend to people and otherwise i think i would like to thank both of you for talking to me uh, i could talk to you all day but i will i will not make you stay thank you very much
2: thank you kevin it's so it's we, we feel flattered that you wanted to talk to us for the, the second episode. <laughs> it bodes well for the popularity of our course. So,
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much. We appreciate the, the platform to be able to uh, you know, invite students to our class and to talk a little bit about what we want to do and then what we, what we both do in our research.
0: I had a blast talking to both you, Nicole, and you, Paul, and I appreciate you being here. I appreciate everyone who might have listened to this podcast, and I hope you had a blast too. Please drop us a line if you have any questions or comments. We're at lsa2017 at uky.edu, or you can write to us on Twitter or Facebook. Tune in next time for our next exciting episode when you'll hear Melissa Bayes-Burke say,
2: (laughs) Hosted by Kevin and Melissa, we'll spend the next three hours expounding upon how great the Red Wings are.
0: Actually, there's very little content about the Red Wings or any professional hockey team in the next podcast episode, but you will hear me talking to Ashley Ferris Trimble and Melissa Bays-Burke about the course they'll be co-teaching with Anne-Michelle Tessier at the Next Institute, entitled The Time Course of Bilingual Phonologies." So look forward to that. You can find out more about the Institute by visiting lsa2017.uky.edu, where you will also find links to our Twitter and our Facebook page, and now our SoundCloud page. So thank you for listening, and we hope to see you in Lexington next summer.